Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. What up, Nerd Nation? Steve here from the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions podcast, or DNA for short, your go-to podcast for all things nerd culture. You want to know fun facts about the latest movies? Done. Interested in a new hobby? We've got you. Have questions and want to hear from the experts? Say no more. Join me and my crew every week to hear about our latest takes on everything nerdy and go on a few tangents on the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions podcast, where we know it's not just a hobby, it's hereditary. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. So today we are going to be diving into our Storyteller Toolbox once again. It's a a toolbox that we have not dove into in a little bit here, so we're happy to be back looking at that. Uh, But gentlemen, well, how are you all doing this fine evening? I'm doing very well, and we are recording on St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) <laughs> oh, what a nice little hat there, Lee. I love oh, it. What a, what a cute little hat. I like it. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, you never cease to surprise me. It's absolutely amazing. So that's... How about you, Glenn? How are you doing then? But yeah, happy St. Patty's Day. Definitely doing all right. I don't really do the whole drinking thing anymore. Thank God. Yeah, that's, nope. I know, right? <laughs> don't miss the following mornings after those days, but doing pretty good yeah. tonight. Happy to be here. Should be a good time. Excellent. Good. Let's uh, let's get into our state of the table for the week. Uh, Liwanika, why don't you start this evening? Certainly. I, as usual, am preparing for games and looking for ways to make that storyteller prep time easier. I went looking for apps today. So I went to the app store looking for apps to help me get things done. And I came across one that seemed interesting called Characterize. Pretty simple. There are thousands of NPC generators, but I was looking for something with a little special edge. I wanted a generator that handled sci-fi, modern, and fantasy. I needed all three things because I am running at least two of those, and I plan on running the third in the future, in the not-so-distant future. So I wanted something that could handle all of that. One tool covers all bases. And at first glance, this was very basic. So the free version it gives you NPCs, modern women, modern men, modern humans, modern families, and modern children. When you roll up a character, it gives you everything like names, ages, birth dates, eye color, hair color, height. 
intelligence and it basically doesn't give you a score. This is system agnostic, but it gives you a way to think about their intelligence. The one I just pressed and rolled right now is slightly above average as an example. Other details like left-hand personality, relationship, and their weight. These are all things you don't have to use all of them, but if you're a DM making a character on the fly and you love the random, this is pretty cool and it gets that done. So I really liked what it gave me as a base. And then looking into it, I noticed something even cooler, which is they have a whole slew of other genre packets. So you can get fantasy races, you can get historical things, you can get monsters and horror and mythology, and they have all these generators within each of those bundles. The bundles do cost, or you can get every generator they do for $19.99. I purchased it earlier. I haven't got a chance to actually even load it and use it. I will be reporting in the future as to how that works, but just a quick glance, it's going to be excellent for my modern game. Yeah. Neat. Let me know how it works out. I might be interested. Yeah, definitely. And for $19.99, that's a really decent price point on that. So No, not bad at all. And we are not being sponsored or affiliated by or affiliated with him in any way that's just yeah. a lot however happily found that he however cool. hashtag call your boys dtj right 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 for my state of the table today i want to give a huge shout out to accidental cyclops games and their very successful kickstarter for the real thing the powered by the apocalypse bill that was featured on our podcast and a five-part actual play that just ended a little while ago, but the real thing funded in 12 hours on Kickstarter yeah. just this week, launched just two days ago. And as Ward said, he he launched it at, at midnight, woke up in the morning, even at early in the morning when I got my, my claws into the Kickstarter, it was already at 75 or 80% funded at about eight o'clock in the morning. Very successful, very awesome. Cannot wait to go ahead and see the final product on that. And if, if any of you out there are thinking uh, of diving into the kickstarter but you're not sure i know that there were some some questions about what's what is the game what's the shape of the game what's in the game all that sort of stuff check out the the, the actual play because a five part good, actual uh, play featuring us yeah exactly and mike from 19 hits the dragon exactly and mike from 19 hits the dragon who was who played the perfect stanley i will say like that, was, that was absolutely fabulous so um, much fun the whole game was a hoot absolutely don't have any reservation don't think twice go join the kickstarter absolutely fabulous yeah I got Very my day one bonus. As did I. Yes, I got my stickers. I got my t-shirt. Oh, yeah. All right. Mr. Myers, how about you this evening? What about your state of the table? I don't know. We didn't have anything big going around here this week either, did we? No, exactly. Nothing Nothing. Was, nothing was, monumental or nothing? Nothing? Yeah. I don't know if any milestones were crossed. Right, yeah. Right. A, a, like a routine but, Wednesday? Yeah, yeah. No, no. We broke 10,000 downloads. Because we have got That's the best listeners out there. Big freaking number. Thank you yeah. very much to all of you out there who made it, who helped us get this far. And uh, we're still going strong. We're hoping to uh, still be doing this for you uh, as we cross 20,000, maybe even absolutely. 30. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree. Loving it. Uh, loving how everybody's enjoying the show. Loving the feedback that we're getting. And really just a huge thank you out to everybody out there listening now and listening in the future. Oh, and in case you weren't certain, while that was a podcast, it is related to the table because our podcast is about tabletop role-playing games. Just we can talk about ourselves on our own side of the table. It's totally fine. <laughs> I'm down with that. Yeah, no, no, My name no is shame Lee on Lee this Lee podcast. And I support this message. Absolutely. 
All right. Speaking of which, let's get into our episode today. So today we are going to be talking about environmental conditions. So like I said, we're diving into the Storyteller's Toolbox here a little bit here. It is very much a companion episode to what seems like months ago now when we talked about legendary actions and lair actions and how to set up and how to frame out your own tabletop world. So let's, let's start by going around the table a little bit here and talk about how we use environmental conditions a little bit and so we can get into the discussion. Yeah, environmental conditions are something that I used to overlook a lot when I first started running a game, unless I specifically plan them in to be key in the encounter or the scenario, like that scene that happens in the epic massive hurricane with the lightning flashes. And for when you're setting that kind of scene, the weather automatically comes to mind and some environmental factors come to mind. But as I've grown as a storyteller, and I'm not saying you should necessarily be trying to pull out a weather map and try to plan out the weather patterns for your game worlds either, by the way, because that's just crazy. But always having an idea of what the weather's like so that when a player asks is a good idea for just general conditions, but having a solid understanding of the rules of how the environment interacts with the players for cold heat, all of the environmental conditions mm -hmm. listed in the DMG are critical too. So you have those at your fingertip. I hear you that understanding sort of how environment can play into the game session is so important. That's back way back in our Alanis days, way back when we were ranging through the depths of Ravenloft on a weekly basis and desperately trying to go ahead and pull our heroes out of there. The ever present danger of purple fog rising, taking our characters away itself into like real world out of game terror because I do not know how Patreon supporter and friend of the show Benito controlled the real world weather, but damned if it was not foggy on the way to his house every single freaking Sunday. And we knew, depending on how foggy it was going to be, we knew whether Ben was on point or not that game. It was creepy. Lee Winika, I'm sure that you remember those days too. Ow. Not only that, he didn't just do that for the five or six years that you played in the game. He did that mm. for the four to five years that I played before that. Yeah. And we had a different night. There was a point in time where I think I started marking it on a calendar that every Tuesday night in the Portland, Westbrook, Maine area, it was going to rain, snow, fog, or somehow have some weird environmental thing when I was going to play in this Ravenloft game. It yeah. just happened. It yep. was spooky and weird. And I just <laughs> knew it was a good thing. I was playing a paladin for about half of that time. Yep. You're awesome. The infamous paladin ranger thief was on, right? Yeah, it's, yep. uh, well, no, that was the ranger <laughs> sorcerer. The paladin yep. was Ashton. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things like that is very, j just that whole, uh, the ability to go ahead and take environment and transcend not just the game session, but outside of the game session was something that I, that very much inspired when we were playing in the Aliens RPG playthrough back in October. Well, when we were playing through it, I'm like, okay, everybody shut off your lights, everyone turn up your air conditioners, open your windows, make it nice and cold to go ahead and try to emulate that kind of cold and dark environment to go ahead and kind of bring you from a try to bring all of us from just being a bunch of schmoes sitting in front of our computer playing a role-playing game into actually being in the scene and truly bringing you into the environment of the game, right? And so that is the power that successfully introducing environment can have, right? Is that it 
adds a level of realism to what's going on. You, Glenn, you were talking about like cold environments and hot environments and wet environments. Like we did this on the actual play session six when they're in the swamp. And I really tried to go ahead and make sure and emphasize like just how bad it smelled and how tough uh, the terrain was to go through. How trying to pick up your feet through muck is lowering your speed and all that sort of stuff. These are all things which are within the purview of you as a storyteller. You can introduce all these elements. You, you can bring small negatives or you can introduce aspects that impact the characters in very real ways. So it's really important and it really adds a lot of flavor to the game. Even before you get to introducing mechanics to the effects, just that first bit of narrative description can go a long way towards drawing the character into the scene, just like you were just saying with lowering yeah. the lights where we physically did it in your game. Yeah. But giving a character that great description of the swamp, yeah, that can definitely make a huge difference, even before you put a mechanic on it, yeah. of the stench and the nastiness. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I would strongly recommend using riffing off that example of doing the description first. Um, Absolutely. If you're a sound effects kind of person, make and make the <laughs> as you're walking, trudging through the thick muck of the swamp. Yeah. And then give your description, the night air, the biting mosquitoes, do all that and say, yeah. and you're in different. And don't even mention the difficult terrain. Just keep describing that as things are going. And if yeah. you get into combat, then describe the mechanical effect. It's difficult terrain. Yeah. The shorthand is you're going through the swamp, it's difficult terrain, we keep going. If that's your description, that's all the player character is going to care about. They will not yeah. immerse into that environment. Mike on PG Academy made a similar point when we were on his show about the manner in which you describe things will let the players know what's important. Yeah. Super quick side note, funny story. Not everybody will see the swamp squelch as a negative. <laughs> All right. My wife, Trish, and I hike constantly. And since we got waterproof hiking boots and she knows that up to the ankle, she's waterproof, that <laughs> noise you made would make her giggle. She hops <laughs> through the mud puddles and stomps in it like, like a freaking six-year-old man. It's awesome. Anyway, continue <laughs> on. I just have to share that swamping, story. Glenn. You stop it. You stop it. There's yeah, there's no swamping involved in this story. <laughs> but she's like a little kid with her new boots. It's great. Nice. I love it. Yeah. I actually just recently got myself a pair of duck boots because, you know, I live in the middle of the woods now and there's six feet of snow outside and my my little boat shoes just don't cut it. Absolutely. Description has everything to do with it. And Glenn, you and Josh, absolutely correct. There's so many different ways to do it and it works for across all tabletop games. D&D in particular has environments and specific rules. The idea and what we're really leaning into here is how you describe it without the rules. And then when you give the rule, it has more merit and meaning. And if you do that enough and consistently in the early tiers of your pains, what you'll find is by the time you get to the mid and later tiers, people just expect the mechanics because they know the descriptions and they feel the description. And it becomes easier for you to do this the more you get in the habit of doing it. Sure. Totally, yeah. Because I'm right with you too, Glenn, where it's like when I first started storytelling – the only time environment came up is if it was important. Like I remember yeah, even like my very first tabletop game, like way back when I was all of 12 or 11 years old playing Warhammer with my friend and like the entire campaign revolved around this creepy fog. And it's like all that 
And so obviously the fog was important because the fog only got mentioned when big things happened. Otherwise it was like perfectly sunny and daytime. But even in, in one of our class warfare episodes, just the other day, like we were talking when you were playing one of your baddies, because when, if they're in the sunlight, oh, yes. they have negatives. Yeah. And so that was yeah, one of the things that we had to go ahead and reckon like with. Yeah. So it was one of the things we had to reckon with. It was, okay, what time are we, what time of day are we playing? Are we playing in full light conditions or, or are we known everything like that? So uh, it's an let's, important let's, thing that we should probably establish at the beginning of those scenarios anyway, whether how what the lighting conditions are, et cetera. Yep. So we're going to have to get better at setting our own environmental conditions. Yep. And we have been. Each time we do one, it gets a little bit more complicated. We're just kind of yep. building them up. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. They, they're still a ton of fun though. <laughs> I've got some notes here on, you mentioned the Dungeon Master's Guide earlier. I've got some notes here on a variety of different kinds of, of environmental, these of environmental conditions, for lack of a better term here, that, that we can go ahead and start going through and start, we'll pepper the conversation with uh, with the experiences that we've had using all of these. And because I, I know for sure that I have not used every single one on the list here, but I've certainly used several of them. And I think that different types of environments bring yourself to different kind of, uh, different kind of experiences. And I use this as a guide and we can go through. I know we've all got, we've all got anecdotes that we can go ahead and toss in here. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can, I'm just going to play a game for myself. Join in with me if you two would like, like to. I'm just going to check each environment that I've actually used at some point. Yep. Yep. Cool. Because I think All it'll right. be uh- fun. So in, I guess uh, in my list here they are in pseudo alphabetic order, um, and I say pseudo because sometimes it does not does not quite. But the first one that like I have here. Part. <laughs> I, I smart. And the first one I've got on here is kind of the one that kind of uh, illustrates that this isn't just a fantasy world kind of thing. This is a any kind of game that you're running can have can have these sorts of things. But the first one is acidic and poisonous environments. So we're talking about corrosive types of environments, things that you would find in swamps, things that you would find like in industrial sites. We talked about the real thing a little bit earlier. I think it could probably be argued that environment was poisonous on some level with the amount of drugs that were going around. Certainly impacted mm. the gameplay on that front. But the, the types of things that you're going to find in that kind of environment are dangers like fumes you know can cause can cause negatives that kind of thing uh and the panoply of options there to a storyteller is a panoply so it's an it, innumerable options there when you're talking about fumes but also contact damage if you touch acid if you that kind of thing or if acid gets splashed on at an acid splash spell like that kind of thing definitely options that are present there but even beyond that the thing with corrosive and acidic environments it can affect armor it can affect you know, weapons that kind of thing so now you're starting to deal with situations where you're not just affecting your characters but you can also start affecting your characters stuff how have you guys used have used acid and poison type environments before so largely i've used acid and poison specifically in traps or trap like scenarios yep. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, that, that is primarily where I've used those. I have done a lot of swamps. It's a major feature in my Land of 18 Seas campaigns, and I've done it a jungle swamp version. I've done it in a learn deciduous tree type area or that or mangrove cypress swampy area so the high water and you start bringing in the creatures that are in the monster manual that are native to that. But largely it's been that, that travel time and distance i've added exhaustion features f- based on the length of time they're traveling because traveling in a swamp is not easy long term half day hike a day hike is fine but yeah. glenn as kids we used to go on 10 mile camp hikes and things like that before and after campouts. i can tell you i'm glad that we plotted routes around some of the swampy areas that are in our general vicinity because having to go through that as part of then the change out of your boots, socks, all of that. And all those things are the things that I've done, but I tend to do them 
at lower level. For yeah. me, that type of thing is specifically a tier one issue. And then I, as the campaign goes on, when they're in tier two or three, I tend to go through it a lot faster because they've been through it. They've role played the experience. So the next time through, I'm like, the travel takes you extra days. You guys have been through this. You know what to do. And unless an encounter takes place within that moment, I don't really revisit that. Plus, at least at the D&D table, spells and abilities really get through that. It's not as visceral. So I try to do that very early on. So plotting your campaigns, if you want big environmental things, and I'll revisit that topic more briefly as we do other things, get it while it's early, because that's when it's going to have the biggest oomph, the biggest impact. I am glad that you brought up exhaustion because exhaustion is going to be one of these things that as we talk about environmental conditions that comes up over and over again and the way that you can use specifically exhaustion in those various environments and why exhaustion comes in. So thing one. The other thing with exhaustion though is one of the things that I have been looking at is an old third edition rule called constitution damage. It is similar to exhaustion in that it doesn't really do lethal damage. It can be lethal eventually. But really what it does is it starts, it's basically your life drain powers, right? It starts hitting your saving throws. It starts hitting your hit dice. It can be particularly brutal though. Like constitution damage, if you eventually get to the point that you are falling unconscious because basically your constitution has run out and you start getting lethal damage very quickly at that point, you are in a really bad way. And that's why I like how exhaustion has taken that over. Um, But constitution damage is definitely one of those things that you can start hitting, especially in corrosive environments and stuff like that. That type of damage is definitely i think the precursor the grandfather of exactly absolutely it was the old system and the new one is smoother i like exhaustion and i think as storytellers the best thing to do is explain it by way of the constitution like you're just run down right now you've been working hard you may even do things like and i do this often i will give dc checks constitution saves to see if people take that exhaustion And by the way, this is why you want a ranger, despite all of our show's issues with the rangers as originally written, (laughs) as repaired in later printings. The reality is we all recognize for the things we do in our games, you still wanted a ranger with you because this is the thing that a ranger gets rid of. Right. A ranger can make it so the party doesn't suffer the worst of this stuff. Yeah. You can still. And at that point, they don't get the mechanical difference, but you can still slow time a little bit. You can still describe what's happening or you can describe how cool the ranger is finding the dry patches to walk on and that kind of thing. And everybody's filing, walking single file, that type of thing. So that specific environment is one of the best things you can do to amplify your ranger, provided that your ranger's area of expertise competent yeah exactly Uh, but by goodness that's a good way to do it the reason why i bring up specifically constitution damage and it's specifically because of its impact with hit dice i am going to i'm I'm going to go off on on wackadoodle theory time for just a second here oh no i in the heroes of crin ua we saw that they were Mm. starting to use hit dice as a mechanic Yep. An expendable mechanic that was did no longer just apply to short rest. And if there is one thing that I know about Jeremy Crawford, it is that Jeremy Crawford does not just give. When Jeremy Crawford gives, he also takes away. So I wonder if we're going to start to see abilities 
or powers or other things that big bads have that begin to affect a character's hit dice in a more explicit way. Maybe not. I could be totally out of left field. And if Wizards of the Coast isn't going to do it, we can certainly start ourselves. But I wonder if that's, I wonder if hit dice is now, because nothing really does, nothing really impacts hit dice. Like even like life drain and stuff like that, like maybe a little bit like when you get like vampiric bites and stuff like that, but it's not super prevalent. But the primary purpose of the hit dice recovery hit point system that they added to the short rest was to cut down some of the need for magical healing. And that's their main purpose. It's so that if you've only got one cleric, they can still use their spells during the combat instead of saving everything to heal everybody else up after, because now I can spend hit points to recover during the short rest. Sure. Yeah. We start taking that away. You take that ability away. I'm not a big fan of impacting the hit dice. I like Hmm. the, well, all right. So it depends on which way you want to go. There's two glens. There's Nitty Gritty Glenn who wants a little bit more reality simulator in his D and D that wants to make it more realistic. But, there's admiring 5e for what it's become and what it is and it's not trying to be a reality simulator it's trying to be a fantasy fun game and only focus on the metrics that are going to truly make a big difference so when you're talking about resource management if you lock one class into just being able to stand there and be the heal bot because they can't spare their spells for anything else it blows thus expanding the healing system etc so from that perspective i really like the short rest mechanic and the fact that it provides some recovery for everyone yeah fighters need hit points more than anything else and i don't like the idea of spending your hit dice unless it's an ability that's going to be something that would affect your hit dice like a life drain or something like that i don't know yeah i I totally hear you on that yeah i'm very close to you on that glenn i would say like i'm 50 50 i'm of two minds but my way of handling that is it depends on the table that's a session zero talk or for me, it's actually a my tier talk. So in one of my current campaigns, we started one way. I later on said, hey, I want to try to make things a little grittier. Let's see how this goes. We'll do it for this tier. If we like it, we'll stick with it. If not, then we'll drop it and go back to the standard. So there are elements of what I tried because I was trying a, several rules. I wouldn't recommend trying all of them at one time anymore. But at the end of the day, we went back to kind of standard and we kept just one of those rules because one of those rules was fun, added a nice dynamic, and it made it a little tougher on certain things. But I think that's the way I would handle that. I would actually talk to the table. If we're playing a down and dirty, gritty game, then we're going to do things that impact. We might say exhaustion is not enough for a gritty game. We need some constitution and hit dice impacts. So we might do that for that, but we wouldn't necessarily do that for a high fantasy one shot or something like that. So that's how I would navigate that issue. Yep. Yeah, totally. I dig that. Most of what I've done is trap related. I haven't done a whole lot specifically with straight up poison or acid environments. But as we've been talking, I just suddenly decided it would be brilliant to design a monster with acid for blood, like an aliens, so that yeah. uh, they, your fighter's right there, your barbarian's right there bathing in it. It's also eating away their armor and doing damage. Yep. That would be an inter- interesting environmental effect to have the blood and the blood stains become a toxic concern as well. Yeah, I've done totally. that. Yep. Oh, yeah. And it was I great. Think, yeah. Yeah, and I had a fighter who still said, "No, what? I'm taking it," and brought the melee fight anyway. Grog would have. That's why he stood in front of he stood in front of Kaylee's saying, "I can take it." And the aren't what black slimes or 
black mold, black puddings or molds black or whatever puddings. they are. Yeah. They're acidic, aren't they? Yes. Yep. So, yeah. so that, that, was, that like, was my acid add yeah. was no, that doesn't have totally to be great. the environment when we're talking about environmental effects. It can be from the monster. It can be well, from right, the exactly. Weather. It could be it can creatures be that are acid. That kind of thing. We, That's another thing that we're going to see here. Yeah, yeah. I believe black dragons. Their one of their layer actions is bubbles of acid pop oh, up. Yep. Do things. I've yep. Cool. No, no. If no. memory serves. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about cold environments a little bit here. Cold and frozen environments. And man, you, Glenn, you talked about about how acid environments can be spawned from the monsters themselves. There are probably more cold-centric monsters in D&D. If you talk about a specific like environment, fire and cold are probably like hand in hand, right? Like they're, yep. they're probably like, they're like, that's 80% of your monsters that are going to be either cold or fire. Um, but uh, Luminica, I know in particular, you used cold to great effect in your Northerners campaign. Why don't you talk to us about that? Yeah, so I set my north my campaign affectionately known as the Northerners. It's actually Sentinels of the North. But in a northern mountainous region, the base city was a place called Cold Lake, a lake frosty and very cold for almost all of the year, even though they do have fairly temperate summers. But that is the last point in the quote-unquote big city civilized type world where and everything over that is trails to visit various temporary villages people have villages somewhere where they summer somewhere where they winter that kind of thing and i spent a lot of time with that the first adventure in that campaign a big huge blizzard was coming so every day that passed the weather got worse and they were trying to get far enough to get to this halfway point to weather out the worst of the storm and i kept throwing obstacles in their way battles and things like that so they had three days of travel before they got to the halfway point, three days of travel to get to the goal. And that was the first adventure. And that started at level six, I believe, if I remember correctly. And as great as it was, I wish I had started it lower so we could have had a little more fun with those environmental issues. That party is now at level 14. It's the weather still impacts. They still pack things when they go out of town. They still do all of those things because they remember those early adventures. And it didn't feel like a weight on the game. I don't know, Glenn, you were playing for most of those early episodes. It didn't feel that people thought it was a weight or a delay on the game. I think they thought it was a really cool facet. That's how I perceived it. Glenn, tell me what you think. No, I definitely enjoyed the cold effects of the Cold Lake area. I mean, as we dealt with them consistently over long periods of time, they could get a little bit frustrating, just like they would if you were in those conditions. But we did work on ways to combat it and make it better. And they were, honestly, it set the environment. It really set the tension and threat level aside from dealing with the monsters or whatever else you dreamt up, the cold, you made it very real. It was dangerous and it could harm us. So it very much added to the overall setting and feel of every encounter. Yeah. And we talked about exhaustion earlier with cold and in that kind of environment where it's basically a a resource slog where they have to go through three days of mountainous cold kind of trekking. Exhaustion is that thing that it's the great equalizer, right? It does not matter what level you are. It does not matter what tier your heroes are in. It does not matter how swank your magic items are. Exhaustion is a thing that if you fail your check and you start gaining exhaustion, once that, forgive the cold pun here, but once that snowball starts rolling down the mountain, exhaustion is one of those things that just gets worse the more you get. And it gets harder and harder to 
stop getting further exhausted the more exhausted you get. And so that's why I love the way that you used exhaustion in the in that campaign in particular. Yeah. The one thing that was very important for me to keep in mind is as a storyteller, there's a happy medium between challenge and creating failure. So yeah, I a had brutal a struggle con- even. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had to constantly struggle with how close am I? And then there were times where I put Rest points were may not have originally been written because I realized we were getting a little, we were getting a little too close to that line or maybe even a step beyond that line and never softball. I don't fuck specifically, but I am very cognizant to is what I'm planning next going to be fun based on where we are today. And if that's a no, then I need to fix it. And I would find ways to do that. And it would be, there's a village, there's a trader who comes by who has some things or offers a hot meal. They have enough people where they can keep watch. So most of y'all can get at least one good night's rest, that type of thing. So you can do different things to help and aid and keep making encounters fun. But I also found that by doing it that way, it allowed me to clock encounters, especially the combat encounters, very nicely. There were creatures that would be hugely powerful that I would make sure they were well rested for, or I, there are creatures that should have been far less than the difficult, but because they were exhausted, I could pl- plug those in, in, into the encounter and it would be challenging simply because they're not going to hit five out of six times. They're only hitting three or four out of six times now. Yeah. So I had to make it and it, and all of that sounds more complicated than it is. A lot of it is just feel. You do this long enough as a storyteller, you get an emotional feel for where your party is and what they're doing. And I'm blessed with fantastic players who constantly surprise me with ways they get around and work things out. Like they just utilize their abilities. One of the players has the chef feet. One of them's a ranger and has some other spells, create food and water. They just teamed up and said, I'm going to create food and water. He said, I'm going to use the chef feet. And then she's like, I want to mix in good berry with it and see what we can come up with. And I'm like, I love that. And it was like, yeah, now you just cleared up one level of exhaustion for everybody. You guys get your temporary hit points from everybody doing everything. And it was a beautiful moment. The whole party came together. Two other party members did the camp. They reshored things up. They did all the things to make it work. Um, And but none of that would have happened if I had not been laying the groundwork for the 10 adventures or 10 sessions before that with the web. Do you want early access to every Tabletop Journeys episode? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? Or, heck, do you just want to support the show? Join our Patreon today at www.patreon.com slash TT Journeys. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, or you can make a one-time contribution to the cause. We love doing the show for y'all, and support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. So join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. Let's go 
ahead and move on here. And I want to talk next about hot environments and heat environments, because you might think that hot environments and cold environments, totally opposite side of the spectrum, but there's a lot of similarity in the way that the gameplay is translated through those environments. The primary kind of gameplay uh, or game mechanic that hot environments and cold environments share is exhaustion. And there are a couple of variations on the way that can translate in through hot environments. A couple of really neat ways to go ahead and implement uh, uh, hot environments. We're going to talk about all of them individually here. The, the kind of the big one is your your dark sun style desert, right? With barren wasteland, no water, elements of resource management and stuff like that factor into a game like that. Another one that I really like are our large volcano environments because then mm. you can get into lava dangers and th- things Slopes. like that. Yeah, exactly. Like inherently lethal things. We talked about poison and acidic environments earlier. Again, lava, when you're talking about like liquid stone that can kill an NPC minion in one shot and that kind of thing. Like those are really, really uh, dangerous aspects to gameplay. And then another one, which is not really necessarily thought about as a hot environment, but is the jungle environment, right? We see this in Tomb of Annihilation and about how important resource management comes throughout that entire module. You have to go ahead and manage for the heat. You have to manage for the bugs. You have to manage for all of these different things that come up in the jungle. Water, exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. You have to specifically make sure you get things to collect rain to go ahead and have water. What does jungle cause? Jungle causes jungle rot, things like that. Luminico, how have you used hot environments uh, through kind of those various different lenses uh, in your games? Again, I go back to the land of 18Cs, the campaign world, because it's my most recent. But I've done this in all homebrew worlds that I've put together is I have a planet roughly Earth size that has Earth's biomes. In the land of 18 seas, I have a series of islands in the south. Consider them similar to a mix of Chult-like area or mm. a Caribbean and or an African uh, rainforest or Amazonian rain rainforest. Those are the types of environments that I have, bu- have built into my campaign world. It's really nice when they're on the beach. and then But the mission is usually two days travel inland. And they're dealing with all kinds of things along the way, big snakes, big spiders, giant crocodiles, uh, these types of critters all come to mind in these environments, but it's the travel. It's the, the things going to and fro in your face, things get lost. It's, and and it's all those things doesn't have to be a swamp A rainforest sucks. If anybody's watched naked and afraid, I think one of the ones where they did their absolute worst was when they were in, I can't remember if it was Guatemala or Colombia and they're in some jungle. Uh, I want to say it was Nicaragua or Guatemala. I believe it was. And, and, they were that was terrible they took out so many people out of that one in rapid fashion because the rain at night was frigid cold and the days in the summer were crazy hot and they got no relief from the ants the bugs they were hunted by jaguars and yep. they couldn't be too close to the water because then the caimans and the other crocodilians would try to come up and grab them it was yeah. brutal they hated yeah. it um and again same thing at your lower tiers and your lower levels that creates those environmental challenges. That doesn't have to be the main adventure. I don't tend to make those things the main thing, but as a complication for getting to the main thing, beautiful. Yeah. 
So look at we were talking. First of all, that's a fabulous example. Like the whole the whole like Central American jungle atmosphere. I can totally see. And Macholt is an island that I've played on. I played the, through the Tomb of Annihilation module when I first started playing Five E many moons ago. Now, um, so I love the jungle environment. And lots of so ev- it's so evocative in there. I want to talk about the desert environment for just a moment uh, and talk about the Book of Boba Fett series that was on Disney Plus and how well it illustrated the challenges of a dry, hot environment. Right, the jungle has different challenges because it's wet, hot. Right, uh, again, jungle rot and creatures and everything like that. But you start thinking about a dry, hot environment where you it's don't a dry have heat. Water. It'll be okay. It's yeah, exactly right. It's 113. Yeah, we're not in the talking shade, Arizona. Right? Yeah. yeah. Hey, I love Arizona, man. Like, that's for somebody like me. Oh. Like it, it, when it's any any hotter than about 80 degrees, I'm a sweaty mess. Oh, I love Arizona. But, and Arizona is a legitimate desert. The yeah. environmental conditions there are serious, and they will kill you if you don't pay attention. But it's not on yeah. the same scale of what we were talking. Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. But uh, so if you think about in the desert of Tatooine, and when he's when Boba Fett is dealing and and integrating with the Tuscans, and how like how their culture has evolved, and how their even their physicality has evolved in such a way to go ahead and protect them from the environments, or think about the the deserts of Arrakis from Dune, where they are developing specific technology and specific customs and specific mannerisms that are evocative of a people for whom water is exceptionally scarce, exceptionally valuable, and not something to be trifled with. And so those are the sorts of things that you can really bring into a hot environment. And I I love your stories about the jungle stuff. I uh, am right with you and all in on desert, and I can't wait till somebody in the land of 18 seas goes to the desert because I do have them. They're in one area. I'm waiting to get there. That's actually going to be my tier four. That's my tier four deep plot for one of the two campaigns that they should be headed towards that environment. They listen to the show. So spoilers, but I will say I loved watching the more recent Dune because that one scene, that one moment where he's, oh no, he's not being offensive. He's right. he's showing you great respect because he's yeah. willing to share his water with you when the character spit on the floor. That to me is what I want out of a out of an arid culture. I want the desert dwellers to be like that. Desert I will probably family. wholesale steal that scene because it's that good. You haven't met them much in the Wheel of Time because I know y'all are both getting into that. But the yeah. Aiel people are from the Aiel Waste, which is an unforgiving desert and their culture is 100% built up around that fact. And uh, Robert Jordan came up with some interesting, uh, interesting cultural aspects for it. So I won't spoil any of that for you, but just to give you a little bit of heads up. Desert environments are great. And all the, many of the same things or hot desert environments (laughs) are, uh, are great. And many of the same things that you need to do for the, cold arctic tundra which is can be a desert in its own way desert being described as that with less than normal rainfall or precipitation versus antarctica is a desert yeah and lower amounts of vegetation the tundra qualify some can qualify so you do some of the same things you just do it and describe it as hot exhaustion table works pretty much the exact same way in the in 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 the heated environment as it does and i'm going to read right from the the dmg extreme heat is at or above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The DC, let's see, a creature exposed to heat and without access to drinking water must succeed on a constitution saving throw at the end of each hour or gain one level of exhaustion. 
The DC yeah. is five for the first hour and it increases by one for each additional hour. So <laughs> it's easy up front, but it keeps getting worse depending <laughs> until you get more water. That's cool. Interestingly, because we didn't mention it with extreme cold, similar concept, but with zero degrees. But for that, the DC for extreme cold, when you make it at the end of every hour, is just a straight DC 10. And it doesn't increase because your body temperature didn't drop below. So you stayed okay. You continue to generate your own heat. It doesn't yeah. build like that. And it's really cool that they made that distinct difference. Yep. Exactly. Totally. I, I, I thought that those two mechanics were perfect. And I was actually holding off on mentioning the cold one until we got to this so we could compare them together. Creatures wearing medium or heavy armor, heavy clothing have disadvantage on the saving throw. Makes Creatures perfect with sense. resistance or immunity to f fire automatically succeed on the saving throw as do creatures adapted to hot climate. So if you're uh, a forge cleric, no worries. If you are one of the correct types of tieflings, no worries. A fire genasi, no worries. They, I noticed they didn't say anything specifically about water genasi, but a great homebrew might be their DC is automatically X higher. Or something yeah, like a water genasi that is in a cold environment. Maybe their movement is impacted or something like yeah, that. You know, there, you know because there, it's harder for them to move. There's different things you can do. Take heed at impacting a character's ability. Like I run a northern game. If somebody wanted to pay a, a water genasi, I may not go with that route because the whole game is set there. And that wouldn't necessarily be in. But at the same time, waterbenders don't seem to have much issues yeah. moving Unless they played like, like an ice-centric water genasi, that actually could be cool. That could actually be neat. Or the storyteller come up with some alterations to it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and one other thing, as you were mentioning, so we talk about how to go ahead and use heat and how to use fire. It's totally unrelated, but something that I thought about too is how if you're in any sort of siege battle or any sort of siege warfare or anything where like your army is storming the castle sort of thing, let's keep in mind, historically, that was a very dangerous and fire-ridden possibility when you're storming a castle. Burning oil, all these sorts of things that can cause various heat and set the enemy on fire type conditions happen in siege warfare so something a little bit on a, a little bit off to the side but keep yeah, those no, in mind. It, let's move on here to uh, the last big environment that was on my list here and that is water-based environments and so again we're talking about the environment when your big sailing ship is moving from continent to continent or when when you are dealing with the land of a thousand lakes or traversing up river to get from point to point that kind of thing or you Some have to very go visit the sea elves Exactly. Some very specific things that come into a water environment, some narrative flavor things that become important. Things like salt water isn't potable. Your characters can't drink it unless it has been purified uh, because salt water will eventually kill you if you continue to drink it. So ways to go ahead and impact that stuff. Things like if you're in a river and the current is fast moving, fast moving river is a scary environment to be in because it will uproot you know, thousand, multiple thousand pound trees. It will pick up boulders. That's a very dangerous environment to be in if you are trapped in a fast moving, a fast moving river. And then we talked about about like the deep sea voyages and everything like that too. Deep water carries the risk of drowning for one, especially as exhaustion again comes into play. Or if you're having to wade. Yeah, if you're having to wade in deep water for a while. But let's not remember, too, that there are also lots and lots of deep sea creatures in the Monster Manual that will happily feast on your hero turned seal. Uh, 
that is Abolith. trying to tread water. Yeah, Abolith, exactly. There are several in the, and we haven't talked about, we haven't talked about this yet, but there are several in the new Call of the Netherdeep book. Let's also remember too, deep water is a dark environment too. So mm-hmm. if your characters are underwater, they don't vision. have access to light. Oh, everything's got dark vision now. Don't even get me started. It's a dark environment. It's a cold environment. If it's that far away from the sun and you're surrounded, if you're in a hundred feet of water, it is a dark, cold environment, that kind of thing. Water environments can be really dangerous in a really interesting way to to add an interesting environmental challenge. So speaking of that, great segue. Looking at the DMG under frigid water, a creature can be immersed in frigid water for a number of minutes, minutes, equal to yeah. its constitution score before suffering ill effects. Each additional minute spent in the frigid water requires the creature to succeed on a D10 constitution save, saving throw or gain one level of exhaustion. Creatures with resistance or immunity to cold automatically succeed, as do creatures that are naturally adapted to living in ice cold water. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. that's deep water is no joke. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah. It, it, we've read out of it a couple of times now, but in the DMG, there is, you know, some stuff on wilderness hazards, weather, et cetera, that you can look up, and it's got rules in it that are great for quicksand, razor fine, frigid water. Uh, no, definitely, yeah. All environmental conditions, but slippery water, ice is my favorite. Yeah, I will say this about deep water: it is heavily featured, or at least based on my cursory glance of the new Call of the Nether Deep book. And so they, I look to forward to reading a little bit more with some expansions of those rules. They really lean into the light properties or lack thereof in deep water and how light sources work down there in those situations. I haven't and started reading it yet, it but I'm diving in this weekend. Ba-dum-bum. Oh, that was an unintentional, and I didn't mean to cut you off, mm. Luenica. I thought you had... No, you're fine. I'm just mad that I didn't get a chance to hit the drumbeat thing. Anyway, all that to go ahead and say, we have... There are some great environmental condition rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide. The magic happens when you can take those very mechanical effects that affect the characters and bring them into the flavor of the the quest that you're talking about. Liwanika, we were talking about this right at the very beginning there, where we were talking about swamps and how to really make them realize how to make your characters realize that or make your players realize that the that the terrain is difficult without just saying oh and you're in difficult terrain and it stinks here let's move on it's how do you go ahead and narrate through the environment to go ahead and give them all the information that they need to know in order for their to navigate it properly while not just relying on explicitly stating out the rules and that's where the magic of your environmental conditions is going to be make them evocative make them feel real and, and there are a variety of different ways that you can do that And a big tip that I did without knowing I was doing it that was called out to me by Guy, how to be a great GM Mm -hmm. on one of his one of his YouTube videos, probably two or three years ago when I first started playing 5e, I was watching a lot of his very instructive. But one of the things he did is he took a walk wherever he was. I believe he was living in South Africa at the time, and he was telling storytellers, if you really want to get good at describing nature and environments, get out in nature and in the yeah. environments. Right. You will know right. how to do that better if you're physically smelling it, hearing it, touching it, tasting it, all of those things. Glenn, I know you do a lot of hiking and and, and walking. Yesterday, and bro. Yeah. Yesterday, I invented a creature in the woods just from looking. Because I do that a lot when I'm in the woods. I love 
like I'll find a spot where I just have to stop for a minute because natural beauty will captivate me. And it might just be the way that light slanting through the trees and illuminating some of that super, super green moss that just looks so soft. You want to pet it? You know what I'm talking about? Or it could be I the do. sky. It could be all kinds of stuff. But I, I love nature. But anyway, I know I, I geeked out there a little bit. Well, okay. But that's but okay. yesterday, I invented a creature that's going to be freaking awesome that I'm not going to talk about on the air because mm. it's going to come up in a publication at some point. Excellent. But I'll tell you guys about it after we're done actively doing the shit that you're talking about right now. Go ahead. But, but Glenn, you and I, knowingly or unknowingly, have been doing that for our entire gaming careers. We were in Oh no, absolutely. It's we a writing tactic too. To it, go outside and sit and listen or go to a cafe and sit and watch and observe. The environments that I put my characters through are based on largely based on expansions of environments I've personally experienced. I'm from upstate New York. I have seen stupid, idiot, cold winters. I have been to the Jacumba Valley in California and seen deserts and seen what I thought was going to finally, after a week and a half, be a great rainstorm. And it was a cloud that felt like it was maybe a car length wide and it literally rained as it went over us and the water was drying as it was touching me. By the way, that was in full gear welding. I felt like a little dwarf working the forge in the desert. So I have lived in those environments and I know how quick water goes away in that environment. And so having experienced those things and been in those situations, been in the swamps in, in military gear, trying to get to and from or do, get things accomplished, even if it was, I've not done it in a live actual fire at bad guys situation, but just in a practice, learn the skills kind of way. I have experienced those things and I bring that to my storytelling technique. And so it's all about doing that. It's about getting out there, experiencing these things in some fashion that is safe and legal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then bringing that back to your table. Important. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Stay legal. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go around for some final thoughts here. So again, for me, environmental conditions really get magic when you are merging together the flavor and the mechanics in a way that make them seem seem more real. Glenn, how about you? What how do you want to wrap up your, your so, show tonight? I would say we've covered the gambit here and uh, and loosely just brushing across them because there's so much that you could talk about, obviously. Yeah. But what I would want to emphasize is don't be afraid to take the mechanics that you see and get creative with them. Don't be afraid to, even if it's going down to a more micro level, create an interesting encounter on your own based on environmental conditions. A couple of quick examples. I won't give you the full things, but maybe I'll write them up and we can post them at some point. I designed an encounter that takes place in almost waist deep, waist deep surf on a rocky mm. shoal as the tide's coming in with huge swells coming in. And there was a round progression where on specific numbered rounds, that swell either went in, knocking you backwards and disrupting everything that's going on, or pulled back, trying to pull your feet up from under you the way that it comes back lower in the tide. And there oh, were two man, different checks that. for it. And that went on during a thunderstorm and a hostage situation on a live battle. And it just brought the, the whole thing was really... It was really active and it was a lot to keep track of, but it, it really brought it to life. Another one is one that I had done with the game that Liwanika was in, where I turned the cave that they were in in the Underdark into an interactive environmental condition by creating basically a running skill check chase scene with Average. the cave in falling behind them mm. and die rolls based on their dex checks, plus or minus, for how much of their movement they were allowed to get ahead, whether or not they fell. Heck, you could even have, a real, have one happen where you got lucky and got carried and rolling rubble because you're also contending with 
not mm. just the heavy stones falling behind you, but the small stones falling all around you. So yeah. the, the entire floor is now difficult terrain. And there it was, that one was a whole lot of fun. And yeah. the avalanche, so the cave advanced X number of feet per round and the people could progress X number of feet per round and you either made it or you didn't. And people were on the edge of their seats for that one. It was a good time. Yeah. So don't be afraid to get creative. That like that's something that we didn't talk about too much here is like avalanches, rock slides, the whole you falling off stuff and stuff falling on you kind of yep. uh, situations that can be so present if you're in mountainous terrain or if you're in icy terrain or if you're on a snowfield or whatever. Again, when we talked about the fast moving water, right? If you're trapped in a river and rolling downhill, odds of you Bumped running into rocks. a boulder or a tree or <laughs> get exponentially higher. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, Glenn, you sell yourself short. That was absolutely riveting. That scene was amazing. There are a lot of times I wonder whether my character was going to make it. That was in, and we played a full tier within that campaign uh, world. That was the one time where I was pretty convinced I was not. I didn't think I was going to make that. You were like right back there with some of the medium-sized stones falling around you for a hot minute. Yeah, people were trying to figure out how to help you and get you focused. Yeah. And I and most of that was because somebody got trapped and my character went back to try to help them. And you tried to help was, them, yes. I was actually ahead and would have been fine, yep. but I went back to help somebody because that's what the character would do. And then at that point, I'm like, I knew it. I'm like, I'm killing myself right now, but I can't violate what this character would do. And I was feeling those moments so perfectly. So you made it. That was, that, was your teeth. that was a lot of fun. If I can kick it to myself at this point. Pardon, pardon the uh, interruption there. Oh, we'll, we'll help. Lee Wanika, what are your final thoughts on, uh, <laughs> on environmental conditions? So, so you don't really, have to feed yourself. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Two points, but I, I'm going to mainly focus on one. I've spoken a lot about how to narratively bring some of these things home and make the environment sing. One of the things I did in my Land of 18 Seas campaign, and I didn't do it until I started running the Northerners campaign, was I renamed the seasons. I basically got rid of any calendar event that or calendar naming system similar to the Julian calendar. And there are basically only four breaks of time and they were named for the seasons. There's planting season, spring, trade season, summer, there's harvest season, fall, and then there's shelter season, winter. And mm, like the, the idea was there are three periods of time within each of those. So I guess it's similar to a Julian calendar. But when I'm thinking logically, oh, it's early uh, planting season, that's early spring. I vary those three terms based on the environment we're in. So in the mountains, they may refer to the middle part of a season as high something or other, high, low, and valley trade season or whatever, because they're in the mountains versus mm -hmm. somebody else might use a different term for those three terms, but the actual seasons are named that way. And I think that yeah. brings a lot of culture to each environment and lets you know what each culture in my game world is and their differences are in very quick, subtle ways that works well. And that's what really, really what I wanted to mention to close yeah. out th this conversation is just find ways to bring up the environments in these subtle ways. And then when you yeah. have it impact a combat or a specific encounter, it doesn't feel jarring to your players. That won't yeah. be a surprise. I, I can tell you that I love that season bit, Luanika. Like that's fantastic. It reminds me of something that I heard on the road on the radio, um, talking about the the tragic situation that's going on in Ukraine right now. But that in in that area of the world, they call this time of year the seasons without roads because it's mud season. So basically roads throughout all the countryside are washed out and you can't get from place to place. And I just thought that I thought that was just like, you know, 
how evocative is that to go ahead to, right. call, to call March and April the, the the months without roads or whatever? Yeah, and, and I believe they call it mud, mudding season in uh, down east. Uh, in oh, Maine. sure, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely yeah. Season yeah. There. Um, yeah. It, it was always the most ironic season when I lived in northern New Hampshire in the season after kind of the snow is gone. So like in like March, April, like in that neighborhood, it's everything is mud and it's before the tourists come back. But what's most ironic is that in the fall of every year in like September, there is a mud football tournament with you get two teams of seven players uh, playing mud football, which I like, why would you do that in September? Why wouldn't you do that in May or April or whatever? And that's, but that's a, uh, that's a, uh, that's what we would do for fun is when you can't go skiing, you play in the mud. So pretty much. Anywho, all that to go ahead and say, we hope that you all enjoyed our episode today on environmental conditions. What are ways that you use environmental conditions? How do you bring them to your game? Do you develop an entire season calendar like Liwanika? Do you prefer building specific environmental encounters uh, like Glenn did? Please, we'd love to go ahead and hear from you. So please comment, like, subscribe. We'd love to go ahead and hear your feedback on, uh, on today's show as always. So this coming Tuesday, we have our second class warfare episode with uh, Kel and Scald from Awfully Queer Heroes, where we take our heroes from uh, their book, uh, Adventures in ADHD. We ramp them up to level 20 and throw them up against uh, another deadly encounter that I give us a solid B on that effort because there were some moments that were pretty touch and go in that one. I won't spoil anything, but that's- An uh, elephant, a rabbit, and a- what would you call elf. yourself? Elf. Yeah, yeah, half elf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A half elf, a heron gone, and a and a loxodon. Yeah, and a loxodon walking <laughs> through walk, yeah. walking through the fail wild. Yeah. It's the start I of the do, bad joke. I do. I love that loxodon paladin too. That's I'm gonna have to play that more. So yeah, that's Twitch coming up on Tuesday as well. Yeah, that's coming up on Tuesday, and then on uh, next Saturday, so one week from uh, from the time that you're hearing this episode, we've got a really special panel coming on the show. We have a bunch of women tabletop cre- uh, RPG creators coming on to go ahead and talk about a variety of different aspects of uh, of the tabletop RPG uh, creator space. So it's our little nod to uh, to International Women's uh, Month this year. Really looking forward to that episode. We'll be recording that soon, so really looking forward uh, to pulling that together and uh, and seeing them. And then and then in April. Uh, it is going to be, I don't know, have we made this announcement yet that April is- We have in our last we month, have, but yeah. that's okay. You can do it again. Yeah. You'll like to I, do it. I wasn't sure what episode we actually made the announcement on because I know we've already recorded part of it. But uh, <laughs> but for uh, for those of you out there, uh, because of numerous requests from one in, one of our Patreon subscribers in particular, April is going to be all critical role all the time. We're going to be diving into Call of the Netherdeep. We're going to be talking about Vox Machina. We're going to be talking about a bunch of different... Uh, we have a couple of other episodes all about critical role that we're trying to go ahead and, and put together here. And that's going to be basically all of April. So yeah. that'll be... We're going to uh, throw it on a class war. With multi classes out of the Nether Deep, yeah, book. exactly. Yeah, so we're going to be pulling some classes out of Call of the Nether Deep and roll up some characters there, and yeah, it'll be a good time. We're really looking forward to that. But yeah, all right. With all of that, so we're going to call it a night there. So, gentlemen, thank you as always. Pleasure as always speaking to you this evening. Glad we could uh, we could put this together, and thank you everybody out there for listening. Again, we will talk to you again uh, next week when we come back with uh, our female creators in the tabletop uh, role playing space. So, have a good week, everybody. We'll talk to you then. And remember. Make your weather and environment legendary. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, 
by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water. Thank you.